big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons, Leah and Amanda. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to our notes, videos of us making Jane Austen themed cocktails and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering the fourth part of the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility with our guest, Janae Randall. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about, I would say, this is probably like the, the third, sixth of, of the movie, right? Would that be what... Where we're, we're headed towards the fourth sixth, if we can make it. Fourth sixth. Oh, you're right. You're right. The fourth sixth. The fourth, fourth sixth. That's a hard word to say. Of uh, Sense and Sensibility, written by Emma Thompson, directed by Ang Lee, starring Emma Thompson, Hugh Grant, Alan Rickman, and Kate Winslet. And we are joined here today by Janae Randall of the Book Was Better podcast. How are you doing, Janae? I'm good. How are you? Good. Long time no see. I know it's been so long. We just recorded our last episode, listeners, and we are jumping back in with uh, this one. So (laughs) he had to wait, but here we are. So we asked Janae in the last episode a bunch of questions about her experience with Jane Austen. So if you want to hear all of her Jane Austen takes, go back to that episode, listen to that. We're just going to dive right back into the the movie because we've got a lot more to talk about. I feel like we haven't even started yet, to be honest, even though we've been talking about it for so long. I know. <laughs> oh yeah. We, we have still quite a bit of a ways to go, but uh, first I'll, I'll just refresh our listeners. We left off with Colonel Brandon leaving his estate in a hurry and abandoning his picnic. And so That brings us to the Dashwoods and Willoughby going to the picnic at Barton Cottage and hanging out there. Yes. And they are eating apples and cheese and Willoughby is just talking shit, just talking shit about Brandon, about Mrs. Jennings, about Sir John. And this is something we talked about in the book, which is that he brings out the worst in Marianne Mm -hmm. and honestly kind of the worst in all of them because they're all like, except for Eleanor laughing along with him and being like, Oh, ho ho ho. Yeah. Brandon sucks. And he's, he says the thing about him being the kind of person that nobody remembers to invite anywhere. Um, And it's just mean. He's so mean. How dare you besmirch the good name of Brandon? Yeah. Eleanor's like, why should you dislike him so much? And he's like, because he, threatened me with rain when I wanted it fine and blah, 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 blah. He lifts Marianne up and starts spinning her around and they're giggling. And he's like, like, you must give me leave to dislike him as much as I adore. And then everyone pauses and he's looking into Marianne's eyes and then he turns and he goes, this cottage. What a, what a man move. <laughs> I have two things to say about this particular scene. One of which is Marianne and Willoughby walked so that Jack and Rose could run. Because they started doing that spinning thing. And I was like, this feels familiar. Yes. Um, <laughs> Titanic came out after this movie, didn't it? When did Titanic come out? Titanic came out after this movie. Okay. Um, that was, this, was, this was a Kate Winslet performance before Titanic. Yeah. There's a meme going on on the internet right now where it's like Jack and Rose spinning together. And what I saw <laughs> made me laugh really hard. And it's like. It was like, I'm dead inside. And the other person says, I'm an alcoholic. And it goes, let's start a theater company. <laughs> oh, no. So maybe that's a that's a template we got to use in this episode somehow. I think you're right. Also, um, Titanic, I just Googled, came out in 1997. So two years after this. Yeah, no, I definitely was thinking that. I was like, oh, oh I see what you did there. Um, the other thing I was thinking was they keep talking about how they only have 500 pounds a year. And 
you know how this is how you know that I listen to your podcast like actively because as I was thinking this I just heard Becca's voice in my head go the economics of dating in Jane Austen Graham the sound effect Graham the sound effect because they talk about having 500 pounds a year and the way that they talk about it is like that they're supposed to be really poor but their house is really nice and like I looked up how much 500 pounds a year would be in today's money and it's definitely a lot more than I thought it was going to be. That's more than even I make in a year. I was like, wow. Wow. Uh, 500 pounds a year in 1811, which is when this book was published, is 43,000 pounds a year in 2022 money. Woof. So they're fine. Yeah, they're fine. They're comfortable. I mean, I suppose they are a four-person household. However... The price of living was lower then. I mean, it depends on like what you characterize as the price of living, quote unquote, because that's they true. Can't... They are getting this apartment for free. Yeah. Like they they also like they can afford two servants. That's true. Like, on that salary. But that's like and like how much are they paying each servant is a real question. Yeah. Um, and how much are they paying in rent is the real question. So these expenses kind of add up. So like it does translate to you can't afford beef in the end, but it's not like they are destitute. They are not like on the streets. Right. They're they're rich people poor. They're rich. Right. That's what I was going to say is like the way that they talk about it sometimes is as if they're literally like one bounce check away from being evicted from their house. And that's not what's happening right now. Right. They got evicted from their house because their son married a bitch. (laughs) I mean. That is correct. A bouncing bitch throwback. A bouncing bitch. (laughs) I did call her a bouncing bitch. Okay. Okay. So he says he has particular, this is Willoughby. Willoughby says he has particular associations with this cottage that makes him love it all the more. And Eleanor is like rolling her eyes like, oh my God, the way he is talking about Marianne right in front of everyone. And Marianne is swooning. Swooning. Then we cut to him and Marianne walking him to the gate and they're unaccompanied. And he's like, saying oh this is improper or actually Marianne says Eleanor would say this is improper and he's like it is kind of improper and she's like whatever and then he asks if he can talk to her the next day alone and she says that they're always alone and he's like I have something in particular I wish to ask you and she's like okay I'll stay home from church this is an addition to make it clear that he intended to ask her to marry him. Yeah, this is going to be for a later episode discussion, but they do cut a rather significant portion of Willoughby explaining himself later. So the way Emma Thompson justifies that decision is that she sort of shows instead of tells that he thought all these things. And it makes it clear to us that Marianne's not crazy. She didn't imagine this and that she is actually being gaslit out of her feelings. Yes, it's complicated. Willoughby's a complicated character because in the book, it you know, him explaining himself it's easy to be like, I don't believe you. Like, I don't believe that you actually were going to do that. But showing it kind of, it doesn't make it forgivable, Mm. but it makes it obvious that he did love her. Yes. So we cut to the next day with the other girls. Well, actually, first we cut to a, a church scene in which Margaret is like, whispering about like do we think he's gonna get down on do one you think knee? he'll kneel down <laughs> they always get down on one knee she's so cute so cute justice for margaret justice for margaret this this whole movie is just justice for margaret she's great in this film she's so good favorite character yeah. um <laughs> then they're walking back from church and i did like the way they were so excited about their sermon they were like wonderful sermon <laughs> like walking back like skipping along all excited and then we see Marianne just like dart in front of the camera sobbing and they walk inside and they see Willoughby in the other room and he is tense and they're like what 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 happened and we can see in Willoughby kind of sputtering being like uh i i have to actually go to london and he's like not telling them why greg wise is such a theater actor we were watching this together me and becca and we were noticing that he like his lips he like you can see his like face is so relaxed because he's doing like the the facial relaxed thing and his lips are like not moving <laughs> i can't describe it yeah this man has been on the west end yeah well do you know what i kept thinking about it's like the it's the stuttering and it's also he kept doing the like the vocal quiver 
Mm-hmm. You know how you when your voice breaks a bit when you're trying not to cry, and he, there was a, there was a little bit of that, and I was like, "Oh, Willoughby, if only I didn't know how this book ends, I would be feeling for you." I know. When we were watching it last night, my roommate agreed. She was like, "Kind of now that I know that he's married to Emma Thompson, like I kind of can see it. Like maybe I know I know that Willoughby's a dick, but like I kind of see what Marianne sees in him." I mean, let's take a moment just just. Like like a 10 second moment. Let's all just appreciate how good looking a couple they are together. So hot. Yeah. So hot. Perfect. Yeah. All right. It's over. Yeah. Let's One of on. our listeners sent us um, some videos of him on the British equivalent of Dancing with the Stars. Ooh. And I watched all of them. I did a deep dive and he was so adorable. And he called his wife Dame Emma Thompson. He, he called her Dame Emma. Oh, my God. That's incredible. And like she had convinced him <laughs> to do the show. They've been married so long. I know it's so sweet. And he was like not the best dancer, but he had a good time every time. I mean, that's all you want, really, is like for them to have a good time. Yeah. I'm glad Greg Weiss is a good dude because Willoughby, ugh, not, not a good, a good dude. dude. So yeah, he's like sputtering. He says he has to go, and then he he says. You know, he doesn't want to torture himself any longer and runs away. Again, a very self-centered, selfish lover. Um, he doesn't seem to care Will how this is. Will be the pillow princess. He's a pillow <laughs> princess. He doesn't care how this is affecting their whole family. Marianne runs upstairs and Eleanor starts kind of hypothesizing about, like, why is he being so guilty? Like, are they engaged? And Mrs. Dashwood says... What are you saying? That he's been acting a part to your sister all this time? And Eleanor says flat out, no, he loves her, I'm sure. Which I think is another another way that they're trying to show us that he has had honorable intentions, even if he doesn't act on them. Mrs. Dashwood then says that they need to trust her to tell them on their own on her own time whether or not they're engaged. But Eleanor just thinks that there was something kind of underhand in the way he left. Then she goes upstairs and Mrs. Dashwood runs into her room crying. Margaret is standing there with a cup of tea, trying to give it to Marianne. And she says, she won't let me in and hands it to Eleanor. Then she runs into her room crying and they're all crying. And Eleanor is standing there and the camera angle is coming from above. So we don't see Eleanor's face. We just see her standing there with a cup of tea going and sitting on the stairs and then sipping her tea to the music of her entire family wailing around her. And it is so good. It is such a mood. And it's also like, she just, and it's not even that she sits on the stairs. She looks at all three of the doors and is basically just like, well, here I am. And sits on the stairs and takes her tea and just, oh my God, it is such a mood. And it's so, so good. As the middle sister in a family where the other three women are considered more, quote, dramatic than me, the scene <laughs> is so relatable. Yeah, yeah. But also it's kind of emblematic of how... Eleanor is for the entire book and movie she has to be the strong one in this family because her family's falling apart so she has to keep it together and she's trying so hard to hold it together which is why at the end when she finally cracks it's this beautiful moment of like yes feel your feelings you've had to hold them in for so long and while Eleanor Dashwood may be a goddamn liar it's not that she doesn't have good reason to be a goddamn liar. Yeah. Oh, no. They can't all go to pieces. Right. Oh, oh, Eleanor. Then cut to Barton, the main house, and they're having tea and there's dogs hanging out and everyone's like playing cards and it's raining. And this is the moment where we get the iconic, if only this rain would stop. And then Mr. Palmer going, if only you would stop. <laughs> and what is it? She says, I can't believe it. I simply can't believe it. And he goes, Try. <laughs> <laughs> those were two of my favorite lines I wrote them down as my fa- my best line deliveries um, try <laughs> try <laughs> Lucy goes over to Eleanor and is like maybe we can have a little chat now and she asks her if she's acquainted with Mrs. Ferrers and Eleanor is like I, I don't don't know that you know that family and she's like oh I might be well acquainted with them soon and she says do you have an understanding with Robert? And Lucy goes, no, no, never met him in my life. No, with Edward. And she like looks up at her through her eyebrow. She does. And is that the moment you said she was genius? Uh, no, it's coming. Oh, okay, okay. It's a, it's in a little bit. But I did write down here, small nod of appreciation to Eleanor's hairstyle. Because I really thought I'd like the little bows in her bun were really cute. Although the way that she has the twists at the front, I'm not going to lie, made me think of how I used to wear butterfly clips <gasps> in my hair. 
like how you know how you would twist them and then put the butterfly clip at the end and once I saw it I couldn't unsee it you're 100% right I was thinking that I really liked her hairstyle because I thought that doing those little twists was a nice way to like create volume and curl and I was like how is she keeping those in place but you're right that it's very reminiscent of the butterfly clip era yes absolutely and once I saw it I could not unsee it but I also was like I appreciate a good bow moment, you know? But the close-up on Emma Thompson's face in this moment and the the pain that just briefly pass, passes over her face, the disbelief, the shock. Edward Ferris. Edward. Edward. Surely. We mean different Edward Ferris. Yeah, the very, the very same. <laughs> uh, yeah, she is panicking. Lucy says... You know, like, I know I wouldn't have told you if I didn't trust that you could keep our secret. I know he looks on you as his sister, blah, 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 blah. She explains about Mr. Pratt and how they stayed there. And you can see Eleanor, like, realizing, like, oh, he tried to tell me. Yeah. And then Lucy pulls out her handkerchief. Mm -hmm. And she makes sure that the initials are angled just so that Eleanor can see them. And then she looks up at her through her eyebrows again. And this is where I wrote Lucy Steele is a goddamn mastermind. Oh, yeah. She is playing chess when everyone else is just breathing. Yeah, they're not even playing checkers. They're not even playing checkers. They're just there. Yep. It's the it's the fake cry. It's the way that she like puts the hanky up so clearly so that she can see the initials and then looks up through her eyelashes Mm-hmm. triumphantly to watch Eleanor see the initials and see her reaction. Just like she's mastermind. That's it. Yeah. That's all I have to say. And it's it's heartbreaking. And this is the the replacement for the hair plot line, which is I didn't realize the first time I watched it. And afterwards, Becca was like, did you notice that they didn't do the lock of hair thing? And I was like, oh. but Becca then was like, but they did the the handkerchiefs. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think that that was the replacement, but it totally is. They probably were like, the one lock of hair bit is probably enough for the modern era. We need to do something else that's not hair related to show the Lucy Steele Edward Ferris connection. And they were correct. It was it was one one hair lock too many in the book. I like the idea, though, that our good boy Edward Ferris is walking around with multiple monogrammed handkerchiefs with his own initials on them. I mean, doesn't everyone? Is that not a thing? Is that like a high class thing, though? They have to have more than one handkerchief because you have to give it to a lady. Yeah. At some point. So you have to get a new one. It's such a weird thing to give away because it's got your snot on it. I just am not a fan of the hanky. Yeah, the hanky's weird. Yeah, it is a bit of a weird one. I mean, I I think they are like a one-time use type thing as in they use it (laughs) and then put it in the washing. So I'm sure they have multiples, but yeah, no, it is a bit of a weird one. Fair, fair, fair. It's a bit like in the first bit of the film when Eleanor like wipes her snotty face and then tries to give it back to him and she's like no no you keep it and it's like oh he's just being polite or he just doesn't want to touch her snot this episode of pot and prejudice brought to you by uh, Kleenex or Puffs oh my god (laughs) maybe I should reach out (laughs) so that happens and then Mrs. Jennings is like, I must know what you're talking about, inserts herself into the conversation. And Lucy is like, please don't tell. Our secret can't get out. And Eleanor in the rush is like, I give you my word. And they focus in on that because that's her word is very important to Eleanor. Mrs. Jennings then invites them to come to London. And Charlotte is so excited at this point that they're going to come to London that she wrinkles up that paper. And that's when he squeezes it up. It's such a weird move on her part she just runs up to her husband grabs the front of his newspaper kind of like wriggles it like his hands like yeah and then runs away and he just like (laughs) smooths out the paper the porcupine and there was another moment between them at this point where she was like oh my gosh isn't it so exciting that the Dashwoods are going to come with us to London and he says yes I I came here with no other goal in mind or the deadpan I love him so much then we cut to that night and it's just a shot of Eleanor lying in bed and her eyes are like red rimmed and Marianne is bustling around behind her being like oh I'm so excited I'm gonna see Willoughby you're gonna see Edward are you asleep and Eleanor goes with you in the room and Marianne is like quote I do not believe you are as calm as you look Eleanor and not even you and I liked that addition because it's like a foreshadow of Eleanor always being the calm one but not actually being calm she's saying basically Eleanor Dashwood you are a goddamn liar (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah Marion Marion was first to say Eleanor Dashwood is a goddamn liar Mm mm-hmm 
The next day, they leave for London, and we see them in the carriage, and Lucy is just going on about Edward to Eleanor, and she's like, you know, I would be really jealous if he ever talked more of one young woman than another, but he's never done that. And then she gives her, like, this little side eye, like, hmm. And they arrive in London, and we learn immediately that Mrs. Jennings has a parrot named Pooter. <laughs> and a servant named Pigeon. Pigeon and Pooter. At this point in the film, again, we were watching with my boyfriend, Mike. So this is a Mike take. But he paused the, the movie to go, I'm sorry. The parrot's name is Pooter. And the man's name is Pigeon? Yes. And he wanted to note that Pooter sounds like a very rude word. Sure does. Yes, and so it's cruel that you name a parrot Pooter. Yep. It sounds like Cooter. Yep, yep. Nothing more to say on that front, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She walks in and she's like, still alive, I see, Pooter, (laughs) which is hilarious. Marianne immediately gives our boy Pigeon a letter to give to Willoughby, and everyone notices her do that. Then we cut to Eleanor reading a letter from John and Fanny, and she's like, oh, our brother's in town. We've got to see him. And Marianne is like pacing around the room, jumping at every noise, thinking that it's Willoughby. And Eleanor's like, please calm down when there is a knock, knock, knock on the door. And she's like, it's Willoughby. I know it is. And she goes to the door, and it is Brandon. Graham, cue the sound effect. Because I'm sure that played in Marianne's head. But only for Marianne, because she's the only one who could open that door and see Colonel Brandon and be disappointed. Uh, Graham, can we get a little shine music on Colonel Brandon now for the rest of us? Yeah, for the rest of us. Yes, that'll be it. (laughs) Marianne is like, oh, excuse me, Colonel, and runs away. And this, I remember this part in the book because... It was a little bit more dramatic in the book. Because she like runs out sobbing. Sobs. She just bursts into tears at his face. So, but this was much more realistic. Poor Colonel Brandon. Poor Colonel Brandon. Poor Brandon. Eleanor is very embarrassed about how Marianne just reacted. And she's like, oh, uh, have you been in London this whole time? So good to see you. And he's like, no, I got to cut to the chase. Tell me once and for all, is Marianne engaged to Willoughby? And she tells him that, in fact... She doesn't know if they're engaged, but they definitely like each other. And and then Brandon says the line that is pulled straight from the book. The line that is my favorite line of his, which is, to your sister, I wish all imaginable happiness to Willoughby that he may endeavor to deserve her. <sighs> oh. and, then, and then Eleanor says, what do you mean? And he says, forgive me, forgive me. And then he runs away. I, I love this part of the movie because their time in London is just a series of people dramatically walking into rooms and then out of them again in very cryptic manners. <laughs> people don't stay in rooms in this movie in London. Like that is for the country. In the city, you run into a room, say something, and then run out of the room. That's how I'm going to be. That's how I want to be <laughs> from now on. Like open a door. This thing happened. Run away. (laughs) So then we cut to them, the ladies walking through town with Fanny and John. And Marianne asks when Fanny's brother will be in town. And Mrs. Jennings is like, oh, who's your brother? And Fanny says, my brother, Edward Ferrers. And Mrs. Jennings says, is that Ferrers with an F? And then we see Lucy behind her linking arms with Eleanor and looking at Eleanor and Eleanor is just like, oh, my God, kill me now. Kill me now. Kill me now. She like wants to melt into a puddle on the floor. I mean, I feel like that's Eleanor's state whenever Lucy is around. Just like, I could die on this very spot and it would be fine. It would be better. Mm-hmm. It, it does relate back to Mrs. Jennings saying, oh, and Miss Steele, if you can get Miss Dashwood to talk at all about a mysterious Mr. F. Right, right. That's how Lucy knows who she's talking about um, in this moment. She's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think they might have added from the book. Like, obviously, the Mr. F thing is a thing, but I don't know if they told Lucy about it. I don't remember. I feel like they do. I feel like they, that Mrs. Jennings makes fun of Eleanor enough that Lucy would be aware. Yeah, probably. They definitely reference it when Lucy's present because I feel like when Anne also starts talking about Bo, which she does all the time, some of it is prompted from them talking about Mr. F. The mysterious Mr. F. And also just like Lucy just in general is fully in the knowledge of everything. Like she knows what's up anyway. Totally. So yeah. Then they get home and Marianne this kind of starts the thread of Marianne hoping for letters. She immediately asks Pigeon if there's any letters. There are none. 
In the background, though, I noticed while she's asking this question, Pooter the parrot tries to attack Lucy. Pooter's an ally, okay? Pooter's an ally. He, like, snaps at her and she jumps away and it's like they don't focus on it at all. Pooter is team Eleanor. Pooter is team Eleanor. Pooter is team Eleanor, absolutely. But I also really love how progressively irritated Pigeon gets every time Marianne so much as looks at him. Because you can tell, even from this moment, when she walks in and is like, were there any letters for me? And he's just like, no. 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 No one likes you, Marianne. Stop asking. Or when he she opens the door when she's written the letter in the middle of the night. He's standing there with a candle. And his wig is askew. His wig is like sideways on his head. I was like, this is amazing. He's just glaring at her. And she opens the door, hands him the letter, and then shuts it again. That's character growth. He has a whole arc. A whole arc for Pigeon. Justice for Pigeon. <laughs> Mrs. Jennings asks Eleanor at uh, when they first arrive back if she is expecting any letters. And Eleanor's like, no, I don't have any acquaintance in this town. Trying to, like, throw Lucy off the scent. Then, so, okay, we go through the whole pigeon thing. The next morning, Mrs. Jennings is talking to Pigeon about ham bones or something. And Marianne runs in and he's like, no letters <laughs> before she even has a chance to ask. And then what does she do? What does she do? Doesn't she dramatically run out or am I making no, that No, she up? doesn't dramatically run out. She stands there for a minute and Mrs. this is when Mrs. Jennings is like, don't worry, maybe he he's out in the country still hunting because the weather is nice. And Marianne's like, <gasps> You're right. I didn't think of that. And she's like, leaves the she's like doing her hair. So yes, then she dramatically runs out of the room. Then she dramatically runs out. <laughs> um, Mrs. Jennings then calls after her to tell Eleanor that the elusive Mr. F is going to be at the ball tonight. So this is the first foreshadowing of us mistaking our boy Robert for Edward. Womp womp. <laughs> womp womp. That is his sound effect for sure in this movie. He's just the ultimate disappointment. So we cut to the ball and them getting out of the carriage straight into a pile of horse poop. And I mean, they don't step in it, but they almost do. It goes back to the fact that this movie like is creating an atmosphere where like poop is like right around the corner. Yeah. Like all the like necessities of life. Like we live in a world nowadays where, you know, we have toilets, we have street cleaning, we have all this stuff. And I don't know if they had toilets back then. But I feel like indoor plumbing was not necessarily a thing, but you know, yeah, they never talk about it. Well, no, but they, this movie does really like place it in the background shots a lot. I want to see an outhouse. Give me an outhouse in the next Jane Austen adaptation. <laughs> Watch there be toilets and us just be like completely incorrect. I want to Google it now. When were toilets invented? When was the first toilet? Indoor plumbing began in 1829. Haha, so no no toilets yet. But a boom bada bing. Outhouses it is. Outhouses it is. Actually no, it's probably like chamber pots and things. This is not to say that toilets, indeed bathrooms were common fixtures in Regency home. They were very much the exception to the rule owned by only a very few more forward-thinking wealthy elite. More common in Austin's days would have been the chamber pot conveniently sorted to the bed and a privy or outhouse located somewhere outside away from the home. Chamber pots, baby. So, like, who was our most progressive king at this point in time who would have had a bathroom? I feel like that's something Lizzie and Darcy would get going in Pemberley. Probably, At yeah. some point, very yeah. soon. Darcy yeah. would be, like, as soon as it comes out, like, it's like getting the new Apple phone. As soon as it <laughs> drops, Darcy would be like, all right, we're getting a toilet. As soon as it dropped, Darcy would drop a deuce in it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh. I'm sorry. You said drop and we were talking about poop. You're right. You're right. That's my own fault. Anyway, so the ball. Speaking of the ball, I have a fun fact about this filming location. Do tell. Where they filmed this scene, they also filmed in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, the scene with Darcy and Georgiana and the Gardeners and Elizabeth when they meet each other for the first time. You know, when they're like she's playing the piano and they have that cute little moment, he smiles and it's all dramatic. Uh-huh. Um, they filmed that in the same place that's all in the same house. Whoa. I don't think it's I don't know if it's the same room, but there's quite a few of those kind of estates all over the UK that are very like, you know, they're they're of a particular time and they're filmed in a a lot in a lot of these um period pieces. And that was one I did see that. I love that. That's so cool. So I guess Chatsworth House was just the exteriors. And the weird marble bust. Ah, uh, yes, the the Darcy bust. It's so out of character. Very, very out of character. So inside the ball, we see Mr. Palmer kind of talking about business with his man friends. We see next to him, Mrs. Palmer fanning herself and talking with her lady friends. She sees her mom and she squeals and she's like, oh, mama, 
<laughs> I love their relationship. I think that they are goals. They're a goals family. Um, aside from the disdain between husband and wife, but like also I think he like might be endeared to her a little bit. I don't know. It is quite funny though. And I even love there's a moment earlier in the film where Mrs. Jennings is like, You married her. <laughs> like, yeah, you knew what was up. You married her, dude. And you can't give her back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Then Mrs. Jennings asked Mrs. Palmer if she's seen anyone they know she goes ask Mr. Palmer he has a better view and then like starts hitting him with his, with her fan and he looks around he's like I don't know anyone here and Mrs. Jennings like no there's Fanny and so they go to see Fanny and Fanny is like uh hello and Mrs. Jennings asks if she's there alone and she says no John has gone to fetch her brother they've been eating ices don't know what that means if our listeners want to tell us uh, if anyone knows. Is it like some Regency era ice cream situation? I feel like probably. Probably. Because it's really hot in this ball. They keep saying how hot it is. I mean, there's a lot of people in that room. There's a lot of people in that room. Ice cream makes a, a little more sense than what I was picturing, which was like shaved ice or just like ice cubes or ice chips. Like a snow cone, but for the Regency era. <laughs> a Regency era snow cone. I mean, I was thinking, you know, like, I feel like this is a really specific reference but you know in the summertime in certain neighborhoods in new york with someone pushing around an icy cart mm -hmm. and you can get like the flavored ices mm -hmm. that's definitely what i was thinking because that's what i would go for in that circumstance yeah i feel like those weren't invented yet but i totally think it's up the same alley that kind of vibe that yeah. kind of vibe yeah yeah maybe a regent sierra scholar will let us know <laughs> whether or not new york city icy carts were invented <laughs> in the regency era they didn't have plumbing but they did have icy carts so then they go, they, she's like, oh, like, let's go see my brother. So they go over. Lucy is like, oh, my God, Eleanor, I'm going to faint. And then she's like, here's my brother, Robert Ferrers. And he turns around and this poor guy is just all teeth. He is all teeth. Mike literally goes, oh, man, this poor actor. Yeah. Why would they do this to him? Yeah. It's like, oh, you're not Hugh Grant. Give us a little womp womp. You're in every way not Hugh Grant. And nothing about you is Hugh Grant. Yeah, no, no. And he's just like right off the bat is quite rude to Eleanor. Yeah, he says that thing about, oh, well, my brother doesn't have any acquaintance of worth here or something i'm just like i'm offended on her behalf that's rude he's no good to me he says so mrs jennings is like oh well since edward's not here like you should dance with eleanor she was counting on edward being here and we see lucy do the side eye thing again and he's like of course i'll dance with eleanor and then he looks at lucy and he's like and you'll save a dance too and she starts like batting her eyelashes at him 
And this is the beginning of them actually trying to lean into a little bit of a flirtationship between Lucy and Robert so that it doesn't come out of the blue later on. This, I think, is an interesting choice because Emma Thompson specifically makes this a chemistry situation where in the books you kind of get the sense that Lucy scrambled and then used her smarts and wiles and sexy boobs to get Robert Ferris on the hook. Right. But that that was a that was a plan. That was a contingency emergency backup plan. Yeah. As opposed to a like someone she genuinely connected with. Yeah. And so here it's like, oh, maybe I think I think it's because it's a movie and they need it to be more obvious. They want the audience to feel smart when it happens later on. And they're like, oh, I saw that coming. Mm -hmm. And you don't have all the time to devote to Robert crapping on Lucy. Yeah. Right. To make it like funnier. So, well, I mean, it's even to the point where they've condensed all of these parties that they go to into just this one big one where everything happens. Mm-hmm. Right. They just don't have the time. Cause like all these things they they go to multiple dinner parties while they're in London. Cause they're there for a while. They're there for a couple months, aren't they? Yeah. Whereas I feel like in the movie, they've been, it's like, it's been like a long weekend and they're just off again. Right. That's what it feels like. Um, Cause they really do compile all the parties into one, which, you know, I'm fine with. So they go to dance and it's one of those dances where they're like switching partners and like having to like going away and then coming back together. And he's talking about, oh, like you live in a cottage. I love a cottage. If I had more money, I'd build a cottage. And suddenly Eleanor finds herself face to face in the dance with Willoughby. Oh, it's immediately uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable and so well done because she doesn't even have time to process and he's like, um, how's your family doing? And she's like, good. Thanks for asking. And we see Marianne watching and he sees Marianne. Um, she's not she hasn't seen them yet. She's just watching the dance. And then Eleanor like moves to the other side of him. So he has to turn around and she's like, yeah, we're, we're good. Thank you. Um, and then the music ends and Marianne screams, Willoughby. And everyone stops and looks at her oh my god I can't even talk about it it's so uncomfortable it's so cringe. oh my god Molly's losing it yeah. it's so cringy she just has this innocent belief in her face like belief in him and everything and she's just shoving people out of the way to like get to her as well yeah she's running towards him just shoving through the crowd and she stands in front of him and she says good god Willoughby will you not shake hands with me and she just looks so innocent and like Ah, uh, and he's like, no, basically. She's like, what's, what is the meaning of this? Not only is Eleanor in this really awful situation where she's so disappointed because she wanted to see Edward, she's trapped dancing with Robert, who is hashtag the worst. And then she comes face to face with her sister's ex-boyfriend who like still has her on a string. And it's just like the progression of awful emotions. And then, and then she's like, okay, now I need to do damage control. It's the domino effect. And then Marianne sees him and then comes running. And now Eleanor is already feeling all these feelings. And now she's like, damage control, damage control. How do I minimize this situation? Because I just, there's too much happening. There's too much happening. Yeah, it's truly so much. Marianne is, is like, what's going on? Like, he's like, I have to go back to my party and he turns and walks away and Marianne just looks like she got punched and she silently mouths his name and runs after him. Eleanor is like, as you said, doing damage control, like follows her and they go into the other room and they see him going back to this group and there's a girl next to him and she turns and is like, do you know them? And he says, just acquaintances from the country. And she looks at them and says, I see in their country fashions. Ugh. And Eleanor is like, come on, dearest, let's let's go away. And Marianne is like, you, you must tell him to come to me. You must tell him. And then she like brings her away. And Marianne just starts to faint. Like she starts to fall over. And Mrs. Jennings comes over to help bring her out of the room. And everyone's watching them. You see all the people dancing, turning to them as they're leaving. Like the gossip mill is already starting. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Palmer looks so concerned he like genuinely looks like he cares about these dashwood girls i love him so much what a good they just like because they see you see fanny look like hmm you see him just looking like 
so stricken. Like, oh my God, I have to help them. We see, and there's a group of people. One of them is watching them through a monocle. Like, like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Yeah. And then late, they see Lucy and she's dancing with Robert and she's like, oh, going so soon. And Robert's like, we'd be happy to take Lucy home. And then they're like, oh, they're holding hands, by the way. Yeah, they're holding hands. They're like being really cute. And then when they turn away from them, he he goes, did she really write to him in the middle of the night? And they're just gossiping about Marianne. Yeah. So we cut to the sisters back at home and Marianne is writing to Willoughby and Eleanor is like, please talk to me. And Marianne is like, I don't want to. And Eleanor's like, you don't have any faith in me. And Eleanor and Marianne is like, you don't tell me anything. That's really rich coming from you and Eleanor's like I don't have anything to t- say and Marianne says we neither of us have anything to tell me because I conceal nothing in you because you communicate nothing and that's a line I had trouble with in the book but I finally get it it's that Marianne has already told her everything she's not concealed her feelings at all and Eleanor is a goddamn liar exactly <laughs> that's what she's saying yeah so the next day Marianne looks like she's been crying all night and it's breakfast and a message arrives for her And she runs away dramatically (laughs) with it. And then Mrs. Jennings is like, well, that's good. I'm going to go out. So once they're alone, Lucy turns to Eleanor and is like, I had a very warm welcome from the Farers. I'm surprised you never told me how agreeable they all are. And Eleanor is like, well, it's very fortunate that none of them know about your engagement. And then she (laughs) runs away dramatically. It's the one moment of sass Eleanor allows herself around Lucy when she's trying to protect her heart so hard. She's trying so hard. Especially too, because I feel like Eleanor should definitely be giving Lucy a lot more because Lucy, there's so many times when the Dashwood, like John Dashwood and Fanny Dashwood and all of Farrah's family, just like absolutely crap on Eleanor while Lucy's standing right there. And it's like, Eleanor is not the problem here. The the one thing about this movie that I like don't love all the time, and this is like my favorite movie, is that they they have to dumb Lucy down a little bit to justify her later choices. Mm-hmm. Where, like, it's very obvious that, like, they don't like Eleanor because they think that she had a thing with Edward and she's poor. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't know what Lucy thinks she's got, you know? Yes, but also I think Lucy, because she's, like, trying to charm them and because they seem quite receptive to her, she, like, thinks that she's the exception. Yeah. And maybe if they like her enough that it won't matter, but that's not true. The thing about them dumbing Lucy down is fully because they had to kill Anne. And if they yes. hadn't killed Anne, then Lucy exactly. could live in her full evil glory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So upstairs, Marianne is flushed and reading the letter. And she reads it out loud to Eleanor. Basically, the letter where Willoughby's like, I don't know why you think I liked you. Here's your hair back. And... Oh, Kate Winslet is just a master class in acting in this moment. Yeah. You can hear the weakness already rising, like the physical weakness in her voice. Her voice is hoarse and she's feverish and she's so heartbroken. And Eleanor is like, well, this is this is better because if imagine if you had let your engagement go on for a long time and and Marianne's like we weren't engaged and Eleanor's like what but you've been writing to him and Marianne's like no I, I he's not as bad as you think and she's like well he, did he tell you he loved you and Marianne this moment was so beautiful she goes oh yes no never absolutely oh the dire level of the circumstances becomes clearer and clearer the more they talk yeah and Marianne's like her cheeks are getting redder and redder. Like she's you can see the panic as she's realizing that she didn't have that much to go on except her her faith in him. And she says he's broken no vow. And Eleanor says he did. He broke faith with all of us. He made us all believed he loved you. And Marianne says he did. He did. He loved me as I love him. And then she bursts into tears. And she's crying on the bed and Mrs. Jennings runs in and she's like, yes, I heard I heard he's engaged to be married to Miss Gray with 50,000 pounds at the end of the month. And Eleanor's like, oh, really not the time. And um, Mrs. Jennings is like trying to comfort her. And it's very sweet. But she offers her olives. She that's that might be my favorite line. That was pretty good when she, she's like, I'll go get something to cheer her up. Does she like olives? And Eleanor's just like, 
I don't know. She's like, I couldn't tell you. There's more pressing (laughs) matters here, I think. Then we cut to John, Fanny, and Robert. They look like they're at, I think they're at breakfast at a restaurant or something, but it looks like the lobby of a big hotel or building with just a bunch of tables. It's the Queen's House in Greenwich. What is it? So it's a real place in Greenwich. It's the Queen's House. Uh, it used to be a palace, but it's actually like you can go in there, but they're having like tape. There's tape. They put tables there. Oh my God. But they, I recognize the floor. I was like, oh, because they have this really pretty floor. It's like a really pretty geometric design, but it's quite a well-known spot, actually. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. People have like weddings and stuff there. It's really pretty. You can go walk around. They have this really famous spiral staircase and the railing of the staircase is like these really intricately like raw iron tulips or something cool wow but yeah no well, there I, you go it's like a real place that you can go in london so that'll be on the jane austen tour yes there you go wow <laughs> but at the queen's house robert is saying maybe they should invite the dashwoods to stay because he's feeling bad that marianne is having such a rough go of it and then fanny's like oh no uh we can't because i already asked lucy to stay um and we can't take all of mrs jennings company away maybe we can invite them some other year <laughs> like as if <laughs> What about later in this year? I don't know. Like, you got to wait that long. But Oh, they don't want to. The, the look on her face, though, this actress is brilliant where she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I can't because um, Miss Steele. Wait, <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of which, do you remember in the first episode that we recorded on this? I was like, why does Fanny Dashwood look so familiar or sound so She's familiar? in Ted Lasso. She's in Ted Lasso. She's in Ted Lasso. Oh, my God. Thank you to our listeners who so- told us that I lost my freaking mind. that's all she plays Rebecca's mom and she's phenomenal in that and wow love her she's been in everything she's literally someone who see her in everything and you're just like oh oh, there you are there you are Mm -hmm. nice to see you again Gemma Jones who plays Mrs. Dashwood she's just all over the place yeah so Robert is like oh that's an excellent notion and then eats his crumpets or whatever they're not crumpets they're (laughs) I don't know what they are um but then we see Eleanor in a room writing alone and Colonel Brandon arrives for her and he's immediately like, how is your sister? And Eleanor's like, I need to get her home. We are going with the Palmers to Cleveland. And he immediately is like, well, then let me let me take you from Cleveland to Barton as soon as possible. And Eleanor is like, that is exactly what I'd hoped for. And that's a nice moment where we have their like their sweet little friendship cropping up. She tells him that Marianne is suffering and trying to justify Willoughby and you can see him like mull over in his brain do I tell her would this be helpful and he decides it would be and he says I have some information this is the reason Alan Rickman is so perfect in this role this scene is a master class and like really captures Colonel Brandon as a character so perfectly he's just so good so good he's such a good person he tells her he says you you've no doubt heard from mrs jennings about my past with a woman named eliza and she's like yeah he says what people don't know is that before she died she born a legitimate child whose name in this is beth which is actually not unlike the name eliza which is what her name is in the book because elizabeth yeah i think they also did that just because even in the books it gets confusing that they're both named eliza for sure for sure for sure for sure uh not as confusing as naming them all fitzwilliam but (laughs) Similarly, or everyone's first name is John. Everyone's first or everyone name. being named John. I mean, come on, Jane. <laughs> so he says that as as Eliza lay dying, she begged him to take care of Beth. And he says, I had failed Eliza in every other way. I could not refuse her now. And it's just like he carries this guilt around with him about this. This is the thing that like I, I don't understand why people think that Colonel Brandon is stuffy as a character, because like, if you look at him in this scene and it's captured in the book so well too, he's so desperately in love. And he's, he just like, he's a man of such passions and such pain that he really feels things so deeply, but it has not made him a violent person. It has not made him an out, like a person who will lash out at others. It has made him a person who just acts with compassion in every circumstance he can. Yeah. We love Colonel Brandon on this podcast. Yes, yes, we do. If anyone comes in our DM saying that he's stuffy, sorry, you can go. You're going to catch these hands. Yeah. <laughs> so he tells her he allowed Beth too much freedom. He he let her with these people to take care of her because he couldn't take care of her that well. But he visited her all the time. And he says, I allowed her too much freedom. Over a little uh, under a year ago, she disappeared. 
And Eleanor was like, what? And he says, for eight months, he imagined the worst. But on the day of the Delaford picnic, he first heard news of her. And that's when he learned that she was, in fact, with child. And the person who left her with no hint of his whereabouts, dot, dot, dot. And Eleanor just like collapses. She's like, oh, my God, do you mean Willoughby? He says before he could confront him, Lady Allen had already turned him out of his house. And I want to say there there are some things missing here from the story. One, yes. the duel. I was just thinking yes. that. R.I.P. the duel. <laughs> R.I.P. the duel to Lady Allen slash Mrs. Smith giving him the option to marry Beth. Yeah. Which I feel like is is important that he, in the book, he has the option to not be turned out of his house if he marries Beth. But instead, he makes the choice to not for for I guess the thing is, this makes more sense. But like he it made him more complex is like, why didn't he just do that? Why didn't he do the right thing instead of just shunning both women and going off with someone who was rich? Like he had an estate that he could have had access to if he had just married Beth, but he didn't. Um, And that's something that they leave out of the movie to simplify it, I think, which makes I mean, it makes sense to me, but something that I thought it's also that this is sort of the rest of this conversation is also information that I'm a bit like, why is Colonel Brandon privy to this? Cause actually what it is, is Willoughby's monologue that they completely cut yep. from the movie and actually just gave, gave to, Brandon. To, to Brandon. And I was a bit like, so did he just like go hang out with Willoughby's aunt and have a conversation with her about what went down? It's, it sounds like he went to go confront him and yeah. he wasn't there cause he got kicked out. Oh, and he talked to Miss. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. That does make sense. But obviously because that's not the context in which it happens in the book, it's a bit like, Oh, Weird. Because in the book, they duel. In the book, they duel. In the book, they duel. And in the book, it is Willoughby when he's coming and he's all drunk and it's the middle of the night who like tells us all this stuff. We don't really get it from Brandon's point of view. But I like, I do like in retrospect, I like that they gave it to Brandon because he didn't get to tell his own story. He gets to tell it now, but he didn't get to tell her the thing in the beginning about when Eliza when Mrs. Jennings said, yeah. And so... He gets to tell this and it takes that opportunity away from Willoughby and makes him less likable. Yeah. I also think it almost makes Brandon more likable because by adding what he knows about the fact that Willoughby was genuinely thinking about proposing to her, it also again shows that he just wants Marianne to be happy. To be happy. Like he's not just gonna, he's not gonna leave out the details just because it may or may not benefit him. But he's like, no, I feel like this information would be helpful to her. So I'm going to share it with you because I happen to know yeah. Yeah. that this is also part of it. And I think that is that is definitely like, I'm glad that they did it that way in a way that I feel like it serves him a bit more. It it trims down the story for Hollywood in particular. And I, I, I don't know if you guys will agree or disagree with me, but I do think one of the best things about this movie is how much it juices up Edward and Brandon mm-hmm. a little bit. And it makes you care a little bit more about both characters and their love stories. Um, particularly with Edward, his actual character, not his love story, and particularly with Brandon, his love story, not his character, because we already cared about Brandon in the books, and we already cared about Edward and Eleanor being happy together in the in the book. But you get you get both uh, love story and character for both guys quite a bit. And I think that part of the reason to cut down Willoughby a little bit is so not to undercut those two men, because and in some ways, Willoughby is the most interesting male in Sense and Sensibility, the book, mm. uh, because you get you get his fraught, morally complex and gray uh, story. And that comes from him instead of from somebody else who we like a lot better. So I think the, the decision to cut Willoughby out, we'll get to it, is is something I have mixed feelings about. But ultimately, I think pushes up the other things about the movie that I like a lot. Mm, Yeah. And that brings us to the end of this part of the movie, which brings us to some study questions to end things out. So best line delivery. Everyone go around and say their favorite line delivery. Would you like to go first, Janae? I'm going to think about it because I have a couple, but I feel like they're going to be yours and I don't want to steal your thunder. So look how many, look how many options I have. I've got (laughs) Molly has like eight options. So you're not stealing from her. for sure. Um, Because really mine was going to be try nice nice (laughs) Nice. okay okay so I'll choose a different one I think we should go with does she care for olives I cannot tell you it was so good so good so good and I am going to go with 
I knew a lady very like your sister, the same impulsive sweetness of temper, who was forced into, as you put it, a better acquaintance with the world. The result was only ruination and despair. Do not desire it, Miss Dashwood. Do not desire it, Miss Dashwood. Oh, good choice, good choice. All right. Next thing uh, on my list is uh, notable additions to the story via the movie. For me, it's Mr. Palmer. It's a great choice. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there are just so many things. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I because I feel like I kind of struggle to, I guess, because I haven't read the book as recently, like pinpoint the specific things that have been added to the story. But the way that you take it in when it's a visual medium versus reading it. Uh, I'm just going to go with Alan Rickman. He he does bring a lot of color to he does Brandon. Bring a that lot I think of color too. I feel like he brings a lot of color to just anything he's doing, even when he's playing the bad guy. It's just always going to be Alan Rickman, isn't it? It's so perfect. He's so perfect in this role oh, in particular. Yeah. Um, my notable addition is going to have to be the flirtation between Robert and Lucy early on. That's very smart. I think That's it. Very smart. I think it changes uh, Lucy's decision at the end a little bit. It does, and I suppose as well because this is the that's the only appearance of Robert Ferris really, aside from the five seconds we see of him later. Whereas he's much more present in the books. Right. It had to pack a punch. Certainly. So they said bad teeth and a bit of flirting. There you go. <laughs> it's all we all need. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so worst aspect of this point in the film. Ooh. Mm. It's hard because this. This part is so good in total. It's difficult to pick anything bad. I think one of the things, and this is typical to any time you're taking a book, particularly such a dense book like Sense and Sensibility, and you're turning it into a film where you have a very limited amount of time. Some of the feelings and some of the things that happen feel very abrupt. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't give the feelings a chance to settle. So like as much as I enjoy, you know, the party where they meet Robert Ferris and then they see Willoughby and you know, all of those things are really exciting when they happen, but at the same time, it feels like it's one thing after another, after another, after another, and it's very rushed. And then, you know, by the time you get to catch your breath, a whole bunch of stuff has happened and it's like, wait, hold on. What? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that is one, one downside I would say is that trying to pack as much in, you, you sort of miss out on some of the emotion behind some things. Yeah. And I, I think that also um, it sacrifices the agony of waiting for Willoughby a little bit. Yeah. It's so quick. It's like which by nature of the film. Yeah, we kind of have to. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is going to be the death of Anne Steele, because <laughs> I think not only is she funny and like her her plot lines are silly and goofy that but they're totally unnecessary. But she as a character is necessary because she is later on going to be the one who reveals about Lucy and Edward and Lucy would never do that. So in order to make Lucy someone who would do that, they have to make her in this part be much more cutesy and innocent, even though like she has her moments of masterminding and conniving. She covers it up in this like veil of actually believing in her love. Mm. I totally agree. And I was going to say the death of Anne as well, RIP. I think it's one of the only character deaths that this film shouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. But I understand we did not have much time. Yeah. Best aspect of this part of the film. I'm going to I'm going to give it to Kate Winslet. Hard agree. Oh, yeah. Same. She's a she's a revelation. She is so good in this part. She just the journey, the arc of her belief in Willoughby and her faith in him just turning to absolute despair is so well acted I think it's the bit for me when she's crying with Eleanor because she's just gotten the letter and it's like that moment where she's like he didn't do anything wrong because she's convinced herself in that moment that actually maybe she just imagined it and then when Eleanor is like no no this was real and then she's like it was real and then just completely yeah. breaks down every single time I get really emotional I'm just like oh baby like it really hurts I just want to give her a hug and it just oh gosh it breaks my heart every single time I was specifically gonna say the sonnet 116 bit because I think that that piece is just not only exquisitely acted it's just so brilliant at conveying what the story needs to convey at that point in time yeah yeah uh, and mm-hmm. she's just a she's just I mean, she's just such a sight, like the the like vulnerability in her eyes, like just supposed to get into curls and those shawls. Oh, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. Oh, gosh. 
She's a revelation. I think that answers the next question, which is who wins this part of the movie? She wins. Kate Winslet, I think. Kate Winslet. She needs it. She's had a tough time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Marianne certainly has. Yeah, Marianne's Kate had Winslet. a real tough time. I mean, I feel this... like Kate Winslet needs it also because having to portray that was probably really exhausting. They probably called cut and she was like, cool, I'm going to go take a nap now. Like, exactly. I'm going to take a nap and watch movies that make me laugh just to just to get out of this. I'm going to uh, set up Greg Weiss and Emma Thompson in my spare time. Yes. Right? Oh, I love it. All right. That concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Janae, do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yeah. So I exist in a few places on the internet. Mainly you can find me on Instagram. Uh, I have my own account, which is Janae Actually. Like love actually, but my first name. Not at all spelled how it sounds. G-H-E-N-E-T Actually. And then also you can find my podcast, The Book Is Better, at Book Better Podcast. Yeah, I post a lot in general. So I'm always on the internet and I talk about books a lot too. So if you're always looking for for book recommendations, I'm your girl because I'm a big old bookworm. Love it. We love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute delight. Oh, yay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And until next time, stay proper. Oh, I have, I have one. I have one. I have one. And until next time, stay proper. And try. <laughs> Oh, that was so fun. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.